I'd invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is our text for the morning. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 2. If you're a guest with us this morning, you didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, on the South Welcome Center, you'll find little Gospel of John journals, little black booklets have just the Gospel of John in it. If you'd like to pick up one of those, I'd love to give you that as a gift from us. For you to keep, as we put the Word of God in your hands in that way, John chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Our text is in verses 1 through 11, and when we look at John chapter 2, we actually see a little bit of a shift in what John is doing in his gospel that will continue all the way through the end of chapter 12. Really from the end of chapter 1 in the calling of the disciples, which is Jesus' first public act of ministry, and then beginning in earnest in chapter 2 in the first miracle of Christ, the first sign we could call it, all the way through the end of chapter 12, we have the public ministry of Christ as he's giving signs, manifesting the glory of God as the testimony that he is the Messiah promised from the Old Testament. And then in John chapter 13 and verse 1, we have another shift that would be just to the Passion Week, beginning with the uh, Last Supper there, beginning from the John chapter 13 and verse 1 through the end of the gospel. And so, beginning with John chapter 2, the style of my sermons will be a little bit different than they have been in chapter 1 because of the nature of the genre of what we're dealing with. I have been preaching to you a lot from the epistles, which is take um, really sentence by sentence, word by word, pull apart the argument, see what the argument is that's been made and how that reflects Christ and what God wants us to see as we follow the argumentation of, for instance, Paul writing to the Galatians or Titus, Paul writing to Titus as he writes a letter. Gospel narrative is a little bit different. There are sections of what we would call pericopes, you can just call them sections of information in which John presents an account of the work of Christ and it's always given for a specific purpose. And so from really the beginning of chapter 2 all the way through the end of John's gospel with a short break in chapter 20, we're going to be looking at these accounts and I'm going to be giving them to you in narrative. And so this is going to be a little bit different for those of you that have gotten used to, you know, point one, point two, point three. Here are the three aspects of what the author wants you to see. With this, what we're going to do is we're going to understand the historical context of what's happening. We're going to understand the details of the story. And then we're going to end with the purpose of why the story was given. And I want to tell you that so it doesn't catch you off guard and also so you kind of know what's coming and you can look to verses 10 and verses 11 which give us the purpose of the account of verses 1 through 11. So with that in mind, let's look at Jesus' first miracle in Cana. We'll begin reading in verse 1 where we down through verse 11. Direct your eyes to the scriptures with me or listen carefully this morning. The scriptures record, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. 
And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Heavenly Father, as we look at this account this morning, would you pull back the blinders of our eyes? Would you help us to understand your scripture for the truth, what it is? Help us to apply it to our hearts that we may see your glory through your first sign this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. John chapter 2 begins with the correct timing. (coughs) You'll see the author says, on the third day. It's the correct timing and understanding when this took place. John is building his way to the Passover. He's revealing Jesus as the Passover lamb. Thus, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the third day after Jesus had begun calling his disciples. His disciples had come together. They're following Jesus, and it was within the first week. Some people look at that phrase, and they want to, they want to <clears throat> read um, into more than what's actually there. They want to say the third day. This must be somehow referencing his resurrection or something of that nature. I think that's a stretch at best. I just had a frog caught in my throat. Hang on just a second. <coughs> Sorry about that. One of these days, I'm just going to lose my tie on purpose. So quit squeezing my neck. <clears throat> Timing. Within the first day, within the first week, excuse me, of Christ's ministry here, it was on the third day of this progression towards Passover, as we'll see later on in chapter 2. Then we see the occasion. What was the occasion? The occasion was a wedding. Weddings are a big deal. We get dressed up for weddings. We come uh, to, to celebrate weddings. Uh, I love officiating weddings. It's one of my favorite things to do of those who I've ministered with and ministered to as it's a major day in the life of a believer. But weddings in the first century were often the most important event in the entire life of the town. Probably even a bigger deal in Cana than normal because Cana was an extremely small town with a population of probably around 50 people, just a very small town. And so you can imagine when someone got married in Cana, it was a huge deal for everyone because everyone knew who was getting married. During weddings at this time, the groom would would have a contractual agreement after uh, proposing to the the soon-to-be bride. They would become betrothed, and he would begin work on a house. And as soon as he proved that he could provide for his family by building a house and having his life in order, he would walk through the town. He'd give everybody kind of a heads up, but he'd walk through the town in this grand processional to the house of his, of his new bride, and he would call, he would stand in the uh, courtyard, and he would call out and the bride and, and the, the, the dad would walk out, the family would walk out. He would then take his bride-to-be, and they would walk from her house to the wedding venue, and the wedding procession, the wedding celebration would begin. I think this is where we get the, the tradition of the doors opening and the dad walking the bride down 
down the aisle. It'd be a little bit of a long walk if we were to pick her up at her house and walk her all the way to the church, right? And so I think that's probably where that tradition comes from. Once the wedding was complete, the celebration would normally last anywhere from one day to two days, maybe even a week. It depends on how wealthy the groom was. The groom paid for everything at that point. And the goal of the wedding celebration, one of the goals, was to reveal to everyone that he had the ability to provide for his new family. And so as the feast would go on, he would provide food, he would provide drink, he would provide all of this for the wedding celebration. If it was someone really wealthy, then it would go on and on and on and on and the guests, the, both the invited guests, those who specifically were invited, who helped provide some of the food in order to, to kind of make up for, for what wouldn't be provided, and those who they just picked up along the way would all celebrate together, and so the, uh, the celebrations would go on. And that's what's happening here, is that the wedding has been called, uh, the, the, the guests, both the invited guests and those that were picked up along the way as they walked through the town, were all gathered at this wedding. It helps to understand, to kind of set the, set the tone right in our minds, because if we're not careful, we can read 21st century Western civilization into the Bible. So we can be like, oh, I know what's going on. Jesus is probably sitting in a pew, and, uh, and you know, there's a wedding going on in front of him, and after that, they went to the gym for a few minutes before they drove away. That's not what's happening here at all, okay? Jesus is part, and Mary, and the disciples, and probably the entire town of Cana are taking part in this celebration that's going on over a couple of days. Where was this happening? It was happening in Cana of Galilee. It's a small town on the outskirts of Nazareth, just outside of Nazareth, which is probably why Jesus was invited. The towns were very small at this time, and so more than likely, Jesus knew who was, uh, who was getting married. Uh, Mary definitely knew who was getting married, and they were invited to this wedding because it was just outside of Nazareth. And, uh, and as it is today, Jesus is going to reveal himself to a very specific group of people in Cana because Cana was very small. And I've been saying that over and over again for a reason. Because a lot of people may assume that Jesus has come and, and what better way to reveal himself as Messiah than to get the largest group of people to make the biggest splash in the biggest area, go to Jerusalem and make the announcement. But that's not What's happening here in his first sign is that Jesus is very specifically in a small town with a small group of people. A wedding at Cana in Galilee. And to verse 1, who was there? And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Verse 1 and verse 2 shows us the attendees of the wedding. Who's there? First of all, we see Mary. John calls her the mother of of Jesus. Now Mary has a very specific role in this wedding. The way that this is structured and the way that Mary is woven all through here suggests to us very specifically and heavily that Mary had a formal responsibility at this wedding. Maybe she was helping cater the food Maybe she was a close family friend and was helping organize the festivities. But whatever it is, Mary's not just some random person at the wedding who realizes that the wine is gone. She, is, she has a specific role here. Now, we don't know the exact details 
of what that means, but it's, it's, it's hinted at. It's anybody who was reading this in the first century would say, ah, she's helping everything that's happening in the operation and the organization of this wedding. But I want you to see how Mary is referenced in verse 1. Mary is called very specifically the mother of Jesus. Now, Scripture is clear. Mary can be rightfully called the mother of Jesus. However, Scripture is also very clear in that Scripture never refers to Mary as the mother of God. I think those are two very distinct differences that we need to recognize, especially in the area that we live in here in South Bend. Because here in South Bend, we have a very high population of Roman Catholics, and it would be good for us to recognize and pause on this comment for just a brief moment. Roman Catholics will refer to Mary as the mother of God. We can rightly refer to her as the mother of Jesus, as Scripture does, but we would reject the title mother of God. If you ask a knowledgeable Roman Catholic why they refer to Mary as the mother of God, they would point back to the early church, the early church council, specifically in the 5th century, and they would say that the church recognized early on in the 5th century that Mary should be referred to as Theotokos, the God-bearer. And they're correct. In 431, we have the Council of Ephesus that met together, that called and referred to Mary as Theotokos. And also in 451, later ratified in the Council of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, however you want to say it, it was ratified that Mary could also rightly be referred to as Theotokos. And so they will look at this and they will say, listen, early on, the church recognized that Mary is the mother of God. But what you need to know is that if you're in our reading tracks and you were to get a, 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 a reading track on church history and we have a book that breaks down all the church councils called Know the, the Creeds and Councils, which is a very important resource for you to have, and you were to open that up and you were to see what the Council of Ephesus was about and what the Council of Chalcedon was about, it is not about Mary, it's about defending the humanity of Jesus Because what was under attack is that Jesus was born and either later on he became divine or he wasn't fully human. That his divinity had overshadowed and overtaken his humanity. And so therefore either he did not have two natures, he just had a God nature, or his human nature and his God nature, his nature as deity were totally separate. And so in 431 and 450 when the church got together and recognized that Jesus does indeed have two natures, truly man, truly God. But those two natures can't be separate. It's not like Jesus was half God and half man. It's that he was all God and all man, and therefore that hypostatic union of God and man cannot be separated. Therefore, Mary can rightly be referred to as Theotokos, the one who bore the one who is God. And that was carried in church history all the way through the 13th century. We even had to have Thomas Aquinas who recognized that Mary had a sin nature and was never deified, as as would be referenced today, was not immaculately conceived. Mary did have a sin nature and she gave birth to the one who is God. But later on in church history, this isn't a lesson on Catholic history, later on when when Mariology began to become become a thing, 
She was then referred to not as the mother of the one who is God, but the mother of God. And those are two very different things. And so I say all of that. And some of you are like, you just went way over my head. It's okay, we've got a book all about it. I say all of that to make sure that you know that just because somebody says something that you don't know about, i.e. church councils, didn't you know the church nailed this down back in the early church, in the early church, you know, in the early centuries, the fifth century, just because they say that doesn't make them right. The point of the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon was to say that Jesus is truly man in every way, and his two natures are indivisible. Therefore, we can't say that Mary was the physical mother of Jesus, and then later on at the baptism of Christ, he was then born and became a second birth and became divine. Mary is the birth mother of the one who is God from conception. Jesus is God. When he was in Mary's womb, he was God. Truly God, truly man. We can get more into that with a class on Christology. You say, Pastor Joe, why do you go into all that? Why is that important? I don't know if you saw this or not, but Candace Owens had a debate that kind of went viral in a video between Protestants and Catholics. And when Mariology, it was between her husband and another famous, uh, another Protestant, a girl who knew Protestant theology very well. But in this argument... When he brought up Ephesus and Chalcedon, she didn't have an answer. And it appeared as though he won the argument. And I actually told my wife when, when we watched the debate, no! No! That's not what it was about. And so, do your homework. Don't be deceived. Make sure you're reading and you do your research accurately and know that the Bible can stand up to any question that you have. Mary is rightfully called the mother of Jesus, but she is not rightfully called the mother of God. She is the mother of the one who is God. Theotokos, the God-bearer, she is, but she is not the mother of God. Mary is at the wedding, and so is Jesus. Jesus and his disciples. Once again, we're not told who's getting married it's very possible, there are a lot of people who think that this was actually the wedding for Nathaniel back in chapter 1, because in chapter 1 it says Nathaniel's from Cana, and later on they're all attending the wedding in Cana, so it's very possible that this is the wedding of Nathaniel, could be. Um, but it reveals to us that Jesus and his disciples were a part of the culture of that day, and they were involved in the wedding of someone that they knew. And John here is building a subtle contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. If you wanted to hear his message, you had to go out to the wilderness. He had a weird diet of locusts and honey, and he preached in the wilderness, but Jesus didn't. Jesus was not some wilderness hermit like John the Baptist. Jesus was involved in the culture, as we'll see in a minute, so much so that the Pharisees at the time even looked at him and said, you're walking a fine line. You eat with tax collectors and sinners. How can you do that? And that Jesus is intricately involved in this wedding. He's among the people eating and fellowshipping with sinners. And we can deduce from this that we can follow Jesus' example, not John the Baptist. 
Friends, we should be insulated from certain sinful portions of this culture, but we should never find ourselves isolated from sinners. There are obviously sinful parts of our culture that have no place in our lives and in our homes. We are to follow the pattern of Jesus. There's no need for us to become monks, nuns, or hermits in order to follow the path of Christ. What's the problem at this wedding? So we've seen the timing, location, the occasion, the attendees. What's the problem that arises here? Verse 3. When the wine wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So the wine is gone. That's the problem here. And this is more evidence that Mary played some role in the preparation and the organization of the food here is probably her role. You could say she helped with the catering, maybe we'd say today. Maybe she was in charge of the cupcakes. I don't know. But she was helping with the catering She was the first, along with the others who are serving, to notice. And I want you to notice another thing here in the verse, and that is every time we see the word servants, these are not household slaves or servants like we would see the word doulos at that time. These are uh, diakonos, like where we get our word deacon. These are people who have been asked to serve in this way. And more than likely, Mary is fulfilling that role there of a diakonos, of a servant of the wedding, and so she's helping And this was a major issue. Not for the reason that you're thinking right now. But it was a major issue. It's not a major issue because everyone at the wedding was guzzling wine and demanding more. Some people have this idea that everybody's sitting at a table and they're, more wine, more wine. And Mary's running around, you know, where's the wine? We're out of wine. That's not what's happening here, okay? The groom was responsible for taking care of the guests who came to the feast to prove that he had the means to care for his family. This was a huge deal if he ran out of food, if he said, we're going to do this for two days, and into the second day, he runs out of food, and you say, if you don't know how to plan a two-day feast, how can you plan a family for the next 30, 40 years? How can you take care of her if you can't take care of us for two days? And so that's what's going on here. And, and this even goes further when you understand that this is an honor-shame culture. And if you've never been a part of an honor-shame culture, you will not understand the, the mindset of what's happening here. In an honor-shame culture, such as a Japanese culture or, or an Indian culture where they would say, um, you have brought honor on our family. In an honor-shame culture where the greatest thing you can do is to bring honor on your family and the worst thing you can do is to bring shame on your family, this was a huge deal. So much so that there are records in the first century of feasts where they ran out of wine or ran out of food and the groom's family actually has a legal right to sue the groom. Either to sue him for money or to sue him to nullify the marriage because they don't have confidence that he can provide for his family. This is a major deal here. You guys see how this is different? We can't insert some 21st century wedding jargon into what's happening in the culture of the feast here. It's important to understand this and that providing the wine for the wedding was not to make more wine for some drunken orgy or festival of drunkenness here, 
but to provide for the new bride and groom so that they would not be shamed in front of their families. And actually, if all of the, the water that was turned to wine uh, in, in those you know, 120 gallons or whatever it was would actually act as a wedding gift to the new couple, they could sell or that they could use. This miracle of Jesus is done to protect a family from shame and to provide for the new groom who did not have the resources to provide for all the people there. And so Mary tells Jesus, they're out of wine. Now, two notes. Number one, this miracle is not about the wedding. Some people use this passage Oh, Jesus loved weddings, and we're here at a wedding, and so that is not about the wedding, okay? It's about Jesus. This miracle is also not about the wine. We're not going to get sidetracked. We'll say a few comments about this, but it's not about the wine. People will turn here, and they'll say all sorts of things, taking things out of context about what the wine is or what it isn't, or how Jesus interacted with wine, and how he wants you to have 120 gallons of wine in your basement. Okay, that's not, it's not about the wine. This miracle is about Jesus revealing himself to his disciples that he is the Messiah. That's what this is about. That's what the story is about. That's what the miracle is about. That's what John wants you to see. That being said, many of you already have questions about the wine, so we're going to pause and we're going to deal with this for just a moment as I continue to remind you that John 2 is not about the wine. But many of you are squirming in your seats about this. And so let's pause for a few moments to talk about the wine. Every single reputable, every single commentator that I read and every single reputable commentator that I could find said the same thing about this wine. This is a sort of alcoholic wine. There are some people who would hold a minority position that Jesus created grape juice But that's not consistent with the historical, cultural, or textual context here in any way or in any form. I think in an effort to preserve a biblical lifestyle, people, there are some people, even pastors, who would think that they have to jump through all of these textual hoops because for some reason, if they're just honest with the text, it's dangerous. And I want to remind you, there is nothing in the Bible that you need to be afraid of. There is nothing in the Bible that is dangerous at all. The only dangerous thing is not interpreting it right. Because if you take the position that this wasn't wine, and then you teach that, it's not alcoholic wine, and you teach that to somebody, and they leave your church, and they begin to realize that what you said was wrong, then they have this open door to misinterpret everything in Scripture. And so the danger is not whether we talk about wine or not. The danger is that you don't rightly understand and interpret Scripture. Does everybody understand that? There's nothing here to be afraid of. However, to draw a direct line from the wine that we see, the oinos, the wine that we see referenced in John 2 and what you buy at Martin's are two totally different things. You cannot draw a line from the wine in Scripture to the wine of today. You will see people who will also say, Jesus made wine, so don't tell me I can't drink wine. 
And there's so, that's a totally different argument, but I want to let you know that's not what we're talking about here. We are not talking about a direct link from the wine in Scripture to the wine of today. Because of the technology of distillation that was invented in the 13th century, the alcohol that we have available to us today, distilled alcohol, is very different than the process of the way that they would get wine in Scripture. The wine that is in Scripture is at most 10% alcohol, because after that it turns into unusable vinegar. Today we have access, like you can buy strawberries, grapes, blueberries, any time of year. Now, depending on whether they're in season, depends on the price, right? But it wasn't that way in the first century. And so when the grapes were harvested and the wine was made, there was a very little bit of alcohol in it. And then throughout the year, it would get more and more and more and more. That's why Jesus says, don't put old, new wine into old wineskins because it's going to ferment a natural process as soon as the sugars on the inside of the grape or whatever fruit that you're using, as soon as they touch the outside of the skin and it hits the yeast and immediately starts the fermentation process. And so there were two dangers in biblical time. When it comes to what you drank, there were only two dangers. Because there are only two things to drink. You either drink water or wine. It's the only two options you got. If you didn't drink wine, the danger was that you would drink very likely some sort of bacteria or amoeba that would cause intense stomach issues. And if you've ever traveled to foreign countries and you've drank local water there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is not fun. It's terrible. And thus we have Timothy, who was in the midst of this gastric struggle and Paul tells him don't drink the water without the wine drink wine for your stomach's sake because the first danger was that you would get sick from drinking the water and so what would they do they would take wine which is kind of like a paste or a syrup sometimes they'd even boil it down so they could keep more, you know, uh, if you go to the, the store and you see from concentrate, they would boil this down into a concentrate, a very thick concentrated alcoholic liquid that they would then add to the water. And as they would stir it in the water, it would kill all the bad stuff in the water. Not only that, but it would taste a whole lot better than water from a stagnant well in a place that doesn't have good plumbing, if you get my drift. The second danger Okay, so if you, the first danger is that you get sick. The second danger is that you get drunk. And so there are these two dangers that Scripture says very specifically you need to be warned about. Timothy, drink the wine for your stomach's sake. You're sick. There's a reason why God included that in inspired Scripture. And the other one is the very clear teachings of Scripture that getting drunk is a sin. And so the practice was to take the wine, dilute it either 1 to 3 or 1 to 10, usually about a 1 to 5 or 1 to 7 ratio, in order to kill the bacteria in the water and to add flavor to the water so it was palatable. And it's for this reason that 1 Timothy 5.23 and Ephesians 5.18 make sense. Drink wine for your stomach's sake and do not get drunk with wine, for this is excess. Be filled with the Spirit. I believe the wine that was available here that Jesus made was a normal 
diluted wine that was readily available at that time period. But Pastor Joe, do we need to be concerned that Jesus created a drink that has a small bit, probably 2% alcohol in it? Not at all. Because there's nothing you need to be afraid of. There's nothing you have to hide in Scripture. There's nothing you have to explain away. In fact, Scripture is very clear that Jesus drank diluted wine. Very clear. And if you want to know the passage, it's Luke 7, 33 to 34. In Jesus' own words, he says the following, John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. He's a weirdo. That guy's messed up in the head because he's come eating no bread and drinking no wine. Doesn't he know that he's going to be sick as a dog? And can you believe he eats locusts and honey? And Jesus continues, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, yeah, but it doesn't say he drank wine. Keep reading. And so you say to him, look at him, look at Jesus. What is a person called who eats too much food? A glutton. What is a person called who drinks too much? A drunkard. They looked at Jesus and they said, you are a glutton and a drunkard because you eat with tax collectors and sinners. A friend, Jesus says, of tax collectors and sinners. Does that mean that Jesus drank the wine we have today? No. Does it mean you have to be afraid of the fact that Jesus drank the normal drink of the first century? No. You don't have to be afraid of that. We have to be honest with the text and understand what's happening in the context. I read an article this week that was fascinating, written in 2019 by a girl named Mackenzie Patel, who decided, she's not a Christian, but she was a historian and came across the Roman writings of Roman wine in the 5th century. She came across the writings of Pliny the Elder, who lived during the time of Christ. He was born in AD 23. Jesus died in AD 33. Pliny died in AD 79. So she followed his pattern of creating wine. She went to the store. She bought a Merlot. She diluted it as he would dilute it, five to one, three to one, whatever his dilution was. And she drank that diluted wine as her only drink from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. to do an experiment. And by her own testimony, here's what she said. I could not tell any effect of inebriation at all. And the next morning, I had no effects of a hangover. In other words, the alcohol did not affect her because of the quantities in which she drank and the small amount of alcohol that was in it. Am I suggesting you do that? No. I'm not telling you you should do that. I'm telling you that to illustrate the fact that you don't have to be afraid of what the Bible says. Don't try to explain it away and come up with all these theories that are not supported by history, that are not supported by the text, that are not supported by the culture. Take the Bible at what it says and believe it. Scripture is clear about the dangers, destruction, and abuse that alcohol causes. Scripture is clear that strong drink should not be a part of the Christian's life. That is unmixed wine. And scripture is also clear that being drunk is a sin. And being drunk is when alcohol affects your judgment. 
So let's stop where Scripture stops. And let's embrace the truth without being afraid. The wine in the passage is not the wine of today. So let's let the text speak and recognize what we're dealing with. Now back to our text. Mary tells Jesus they're out of wine. And again, it's not about the wine. Take that, put it in the back of your mind, and now let's focus on John's purpose for what's happening here. I went to that. You say, if it's not about the wine, why'd you go into that great of an, of an explanation, that extensive, I should say, of an explanation? Because if I didn't, I fear there are some of you here who would be distracted the rest of the message, who would not understand what's happening here on one side or the other. Okay, so now that we come to a biblical understanding of what's happening, put that in the back of your mind and realize it's not about the wine. All right. Notice here that Mary does not make a request. She makes a statement. They have no wine. She doesn't explain what she wants Jesus to do. She doesn't explain how he wants, she wants him to respond as a result of this information. So, if we're not careful, this whole situation can also be misconstrued. I found in my studies this week, there are a lot of people who do a lot of things with this chapter. That is just not at all. If you just, if you just read the text, it's so, it's like, listen, just read the Bible. It's not hard. Just read the Bible, understand the culture and the context, and this passage is not difficult. She says they have no wine. She is, a, she is a caterer at the event. She is not wanting the family to be embarrassed. And so she comes to Jesus asking him to be resourceful and figure out a way to get more wine for the wedding. And, and, if, and if you're paying attention, please do not respond with the same words as Jesus did. Explain with the, with the tone in which he responded. If your spouse or your mom comes to you and says, the trash is full, and you say, woman, what does this have to do with me? You may be in hot water, okay? So once again, be careful, right? We need to not only understand what she is saying, but understand Jesus' response here. She is saying they are going to be embarrassed, and Jesus says, he calls her Gune, woman. And it means something totally different than if you were to call someone in your life woman. Okay? He's using a distancing, a distance term of respect and endearment. He's not calling her mommy. He's not calling her mater, mother. He's calling her ma'am. I'm from the South. If your mom tells you to do something and you say yes, there's a pause and there's a look and you say, yes, ma'am. Right? And I've carried on that habit. It's a term of, dear, uh, of, of a dear respect. And so I call many of the ladies in our church ma'am because that's how I was raised. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's offering, he, he's speaking to her, recognizing that although she's his mother, he has distanced himself in adulthood from her. We see a little bit of a hint of this when she finds him in Jerusalem and he comes back and she says, what in the world are you doing? And he says, it must be about my father's business. It's kind of been growing his whole life. And as adults do, they distance themselves from their parents. If a, if a 10-year-old hugs his, his mom and says, you know, mom, I love you so much and is, is endearing and, and interacts with her as his authority, 
It's very different than if a 40-year-old does that. It doesn't mean you don't love your parents. It means you, you have an interaction with them in a little bit of a different way. It doesn't mean you don't give them hugs, you don't give them kisses, and you say, I love you. But if your same interaction is as when you were 10, either you were a brat 10-year-old, or you've got issues as a 40-year-old, Okay? And what Jesus here is evidencing is that there is a change in relationship that happens when somebody becomes an adult to their parent, but it's still one of respect, but it's one of distance. Ma'am, what does that have to do with me? Literally, what to me to you? How is your concern, or we should say, why is your concern my concern? What is it about this situation that would cause you to think that what you're concerned about should also be my concern. What to you to me? What's our relationship here? And there are a lot of people who, I actually read somebody who said, let's hope that we don't respond to our mothers the way that Jesus responded to his. And friends, that is a wrong interpretation of this passage. He's, at, he's giving a title of distant respect and endearment. And he's asking a question In what way is your concern my concern? And then to make the statement even more complicated, he has the phrase in verse 4, my hour has not yet come. And there are three options of how we should take this. Three options. Number one, he could be saying, the hour has not yet come where I reveal myself to Israel as the Messiah. Uh, We would call that his private ministry, and then his public ministry, right? I am the door. I am the great shepherd, as he proclaims to the nation of Israel. Now is not that time. And that's very possible. We see this happening throughout all the Gospels. John chapter 7 and verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time's not yet come, but your time is always here. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Uh, John 8, 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And there's some different... Um, there's some different discussions there, whether that's talking about his arrest and his, his, his crucifixion, or whether it's talking about his revelation to Israel as Messiah. The second option is that the timing hadn't come for him to be crucified. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. My hour has now come to prepare myself for crucifixion. That's another option here. But I don't, my opinion, if you hold those other two options, that's great. You could be right, I could be wrong. I'm going to give you my opinion. I'm going to, usually I step out from behind the pulpit, right? It's now become a joke. Don't give your opinion behind the pulpit. Step out from behind the pulpit. Don't know what I do. Okay, here's my opinion. My opinion is that Jesus is actually not referencing here, I think it makes way more sense in the context of what's happening. He's not referencing that he's not going to reveal himself as Messiah to Israel because he's about to do that to his disciples. It is true that he's not ready to go to the cross yet, but I don't think that's what he's referencing here. I think he's referencing a prophecy of Messiah that he is not coming to restore Israel to its grandeur. That will happen actually in the second coming, and I'll show you why. In Amos chapter 9 and verse 13, listen to this. Amos 9, 13 to 15. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of the grapes, him who sows the seed, shall ma- the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with wine. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. 
They will rebuild their ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat fruit. And he's talking about the restoration of Israel in the final kingdom. And personally, I think what Jesus is saying here, you know, Mary, what does your concern have to do with my concern? There's coming a day when I will restore Israel and the mountains will flow with wine and no one's going to run out and the hills are going to flow like rivers with God's bountiful um, grace. And Amos says that it's going to be filled with wine. That day's coming when no one's going to run out of wine. But today's not that day. My hour's not yet come. Okay, that's what I think he's saying here. And I think it makes sense. D.A. Carson actually notes this. And I, and I think it makes total sense with the context of how it flows, with the context of needing wine and providing wine. And so I think what he's saying is, I'm the fulfillment of the one who will one day cause the wine to drip from the mountains and flow through the valleys. But today is not that day. My hour's not come yet. And then Mary makes a statement. I think the statement from Jesus to Mary went right over Mary's head. You know what it's like when you're in the midst of a panic, in the midst of a problem, and somebody tells you something, and it doesn't even compute because your mind is focused on one thing. And so Mary has come to Jesus to solve her problem and be resourceful. Joseph is nowhere in the picture. More than likely, he's already passed away. He's passed off the scene. And without, Jesus is the oldest in the home, Without a dad in the, in the home, because Jesus is, I mean, uh, Joseph has already died, Jesus is the oldest one who stepped in to provide resources for Mary whenever she needed it. And so Mary is looking at him and asking him to be resourceful in the time of need to go get more wine. And so she looks at the other servers that are there and she, and, and she says, do whatever he tells you to do. We've got to solve this problem. Now, there are two things very important in Mary's statement. I know we're going slow, but this is so important, okay? Mary has no authority over Jesus. No authority. Two, two notes here. Mary has no authority over Jesus. There's another teaching of the Catholic Church that says that you can go to Mary, and Mary can make intercession for you because Mary will, is your mediatrix. She, she mediates between you and Jesus. And she has authority to tell Jesus what to do, and they'll use this as, as the pattern. And that is not the case. That's not what's happening here. The second thing that's not happening here is that Mary is not asking for a miracle. Jesus has not done any miracles to this point. To interpret this text as though Mary is looking at Jesus and asking him to reveal himself to Israel and to show his power as God is a misinterpretation, a misuse of this text. It's actually another way that the Catholics interpret this text because there's an apocryphal teaching that when Jesus was a boy, he made clay pigeons, and out of a miracle, he made those pigeons fly, and from that point, Mary knew that he was the Messiah. And it's this apocryphal teaching that is not true. It has no bearing in history. And in fact, this text actually proves that wrong because it says this was his first miracle this was his first sign and since it was his first miracle his first sign then mary had no reason to think that he could that he was going to do a miracle here it makes no sense to say that out of the blue in the middle of normal day all of a sudden mary says do a miracle no sense and this is where i want to caution you because if you watch the chosen that's the way they take it and it's almost as if Mary is begging Jesus. And Jesus says, my hour's not yet come. And Mary looks at him and says, if not now, then when? Like this pleading mother 
that Jesus would show himself to be Messiah. And friends, that is not what's happening in this passage. I know I reference the chosen a lot. And we're going to continue to through John. Sometimes they do a great job representing and sometimes they do a terrible job representing. Because the chosen is entertainment. It's not theology. And the problem is, is that if you watch the chosen and then you read your Bible, what's playing in your mind? It's not what you read, it's what you saw, what you see, right? It's what you've seen. And so now you're interpreting the Bible through some other guy's interpretations that aren't even right, and that's all you can think of. And that's what you're picturing. You have to be so careful, friends, that God did not reveal himself in the cinema. He revealed himself in the written word. So read the Bible and read it carefully and read it to understand it and study it. And so Mary tells the servants, do whatever he says because we've got to find a way to make this happen. Now we get to the miracle. Understanding all of that, you can actually understand what Jesus does. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, those who were there, these are not the servants of the house, these are the servants of the feast, the diakonos, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim for two reasons required by Pharisaical law that all um, ritual purification stone pots be filled to the brim before use and to note that nothing else can be added. They filled them all the way up with water. Two reasons there. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. These water pots were used for the purification rites of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees has required the Jewish nation to, to fulfill another whole set of laws that were never in Scripture. These legalistic laws that if they did not do them, they couldn't come into the temple. They weren't good Jews. That they took things that weren't clearly spelled out in Scripture, that weren't spelled out in Scripture at all, and bound the conscience of the Jewish nation to say, you have to do this also. And if you, do, if you don't, you're not a good Jew, and you're not allowed to worship. And one of them was the washing and purification ceremony. We see it reflected. I have it in my notes, but we don't have time to look at this in detail. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, when the Pharisees come to him and they say, um, why don't your disciples wash before they eat as is required of the law? And Jesus basically tells them, you don't know the law. You're not even, you don't even believe God. Is basically what he tells them. Uh, and so that's what they're referencing here. That before they would eat, not for cleanliness sake, but for their uh, religious right, they would wash their hands and then they would go through this thing of washing the inside out, insides and, and back of the dish. And so that's what these pots were there for. They were there as a statement of pharisaical legalism, of, of, a, of a binding law that was not biblical. Okay? So Jesus says, take some out. The water pots were filled to the brim. Notice verse 9. Here's the miracle. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. When did the water become wine? Some people would say it was when he took it to his lips. Some people would say as, as the sweet sounds of life, by the way. If you haven't seen that baby, that's a cute baby. Um, some people will say the water became wine when it was dipped out. So the water is, is the, the pots are filled with water. 
and when they dip it out, it becomes wine. Because as they drew it out and took it, now they had the water become wine. Some people believe all of the pots were filled with, with wine. Take your pick. Either way, it's a miracle, right? And I would take the third one, and I'll tell you why here in just a minute. But. And there's no doubt that the water was now wine. Because the head waiter who was in charge of organizing these events, the head caterer, calls this kalan oinan, good wine. Good wine. Meaning that this wine doesn't taste like it's mixed with poor water and it's got just the right ratio and it's not overly soured. It's perfect. It's good wine. And it reminds us that everything that God creates is called good. So the head waiter responds. These are the responses. The response is the head waiter. He says it's good The disciples, how do the disciples respond? And this really is the key to the whole passage. Look at verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And look at the end. The disciples believed in him. Believed in him. They were convinced that Jesus said Jesus was who he said he was. They looked at what happened. They look at the scenario. And they say, this is Messiah. Now, why did Jesus do this miracle? And what was it about the miracle that caused the disciples to believe? Those are the two questions we need to ask. Because then you find the purpose of this passage. Why did he do this miracle? And when we, find, when we answer that question, we actually find the motivation for the disciples' belief. Verse 11 tells us the purpose. First of his signs, he did a cane in Galilee. He manifested his glory. That in this moment, Jesus revealed That he had come from the Father and he manifested to all who were there, specifically the disciples. Not everybody at the feast, not the head waiter. Yes, the servants knew where it came from, but there's nothing that said that the servants believed. They had been following Jesus. They look at this event and they say, this man, this person is God. This one, he's the Messiah. He's the one who has the very power of God. And it's not because of some quote-unquote magic trick of changing water to wine. It has to do with the statement that there's wine in the pots. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, let's not insert our 21st century mind into this. Let's try to discover what's happening here because that's a question I asked. What is it about this? I mean, it's one thing if it says the disciples realized Jesus had great power, right? Whoa, he can turn water to wine. What is it about this that caused them to believe? Because belief is identifying Jesus correctly and laying hold of him as your Messiah, your Savior. So what is it here? Well, these pots... Everywhere they were was a statement and a reminder that the Pharisees had a hold on the Jewish nation. 
and that it was through the pharisaical law that people could be restored to God, restored to the church, that people could be Jews in a right relationship with God as long as you did everything the Pharisees said. But there was a catch, is that with these stone water pots, nothing could go in them but water. Because if anything went in them but water, it would be totally defiled. They'd have to wash the entire thing and they'd have to wait till it was purified and go through the ceremony in order to use it again. That's why they couldn't use clay because if anything went in clay, the clay, the pottery would hold the taste or hold the residue of whatever's in there and they could never use it for water again. So they had to be stoned and only water could go in there. And so what did Jesus do? He didn't you know, like Moses did, take a rock and hit it and fresh water came out because Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus took the instrument of legalism and made it an instrument of grace. He showed that the Pharisees, everything they offered was wrong. He defiled their water pots. He's saying, This is not the way. In fact, so much so that I'm going to show you by doing this miracle that defiles these water pots. But it's through me. It's through the revelation of who I am, of standing against the legalistic, pharisaical views of the Jewish nation and offering salvation by looking, John 3, to the cross through which you will be saved. I wrote it this way. By turning the water to wine inside of these pots, Jesus was making a statement to his disciples that he's arrived. He has the power of God to overturn the false doctrine of the Pharisees, to nullify their foolish legalism, and to bring the wine of the kingdom of God. He is the true vine, isn't he? He is the water of life. And so this is not about the wine, is it? It's about Jesus making a statement. Everything the Pharisees offer to you is foolishness. I'm defiling what they do in order to give you the wine of life. In order to show you, what did the master of the feast say? What is good in order to show you the truth that it's only through Messiah that you can be cleansed. It's not by accident in Luke chapter 22 at the Last Supper that they dip their bread into the wine. And what does Jesus say? This wine signifies the new covenant in my blood. And so when we partake of the the juice together in our in our Lord's Supper. So we're reminded of the new covenant. That it's not work as hard as you can and hope you get there. But it's only through the work of Jesus that you can be cleansed. Jesus came to overthrow the legalism of the Pharisees and to bring the past the fulfillment of the true law of God. That it's through His mercy and grace that you're saved. This is what the disciples believed as they looked at Jesus. You are overthrowing the false doctrine of the Pharisees and inserting yourself instead 
And the disciples said, in that, we believe you. And friend, that's our response this morning as well. To look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down on the right hand of the throne of God on high, and has reminded us that through his blood, we have the new covenant, the new covenant, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the power that your word is and that it contains. We thank you for the truth of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. I pray that we would have that same response that the disciples had. When they realized the symbolism of the miracle, the sign that Jesus did of overthrowing the false doctrine of the Pharisees and bringing the new covenant through his blood, I pray that we would embrace that same Jesus. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. And I pray that if there's one here who has fallen prey to the legalistic binding of a false gospel, that you would free them with your new covenant. That they would recognize that Jesus is the one through whom grace and mercy flows. That they would cast them, their heart and their lives at the foot of the cross. That they would see Jesus as their King, as their Ruler, as their Lord, and thus find salvation and grace and mercy from their sin. Friend, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, where has God put His finger on your heart this morning? If you're here and you're not a Christian, would you call out to the only true Lord and Savior, and would you find rest in His arms, believe in Him as the disciples did?